This is Mr. Christopher with the Funkatopia Radio Show, Funkatopia.com, and it is my honor once again to have on the show the one, the only, the legendary Brown Marks in the <laughs> Hey, hey. <laughs> hey, what's happening? <laughs> so what have you been up to lately? You've kind of been, obviously, we're going to be talking about this brand new book that's that's going to be coming out, I guess, in September, but, you know, just what are you up to right now? What's going on with your life and, you know? What? Hey, what's new? You know, hey, you know, I feel like I'm on parole because I'm locked in the house with an ankle <laughs> bracelet. But you know, it. You know, I, it, what it what it's done for me is it's re it's like a reset. Um, I got to actually take this time and really think about what is it that I want to do. And anybody that follows me on social media has probably seen a surge of new music, new videos, new me. And that's what I'm doing is I'm like finally uh, redefining who I am and expressing myself and my feelings about things through my music. And, um, you know, I have a new sound, a new everything, you know, and I have a band now called Bad Boys of Paisley. Uh, that I've put together, yeah. Right. And we haven't, you know, we have one song out called The House Party. Throw it up, make it hot for me. Put your drink in the air, make it hot for me. Wave your hands in the air, make it hot for me. Move them side to side, make it hot for me. Throw it up, make it hot for me. Put your drink in the air, make it hot for me. Wave your hands in the air, make it hot for me. Move them side to side, make it hot for me. Um, but I haven't done a lot with him because the COVID hit, and so it kind of shut us down. Um, yeah. But I plan on, you know, finishing that with them. We're going to put some more music out. I've been putting a lot of my own music out, you know, just Brown Mark music. And then um, uh, got a book. I got a podcast coming. That song, Empty Handed, that I heard, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is fantastic. So I'm, I'm really liking the direction. I'm liking the, the new the new sound that's coming out. Be in the club light, waving stoplights. Got my attention, but you don't want to play, no. I hear you calling, so why you stalling love, yeah. What with the attitude? Tell me what's up with you, girl, yeah. What you searching for? I'll show you a good time. That's it, the floor, party. I'm betting you'll be fine. Oh, tell me what's up. You ain't that tough girl. You ain't no hood girl, no. Show me some love. You're running out of time. Tell me about the Bad Boys of Paisley. Who's in this project with you? So the Bad Boys of Paisley is really, it's it's a concept. It's almost like how Prince did NPG. It is the, the Bad Boys of Paisley are really anybody at any given gig that I want to pull from the Paisley camp. Uh, um, nice. Yeah, there's a core group consists of myself, Wizard Jones on keyboards. I have Bryce Miles. I have a keyboard player named Bunny, uh, another bass player named uh, The Rugged, like Toddy Funk, who plays with Toby Mac. I mean, I, I have 
it, it is such a funky, it's almost like a P-Funk mob, you know, we call it the brown mob, the brown stink mob, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a funky group of people, but we'll invite, we'll incorporate like Dr. Fink, Andre Simone, Des Dickerson, we'll incorporate people in as we do shows, Stokely, you know, you name it, anybody that comes from the purple camp, we'll have them as a guest at any given show. Uh, and so, yeah, it's nice. It's a nice concept that I put together. Yeah, that's that's something I definitely want to check out once we can start seeing some live shows again. This has kind of really been frustrating, and I, I imagine it's got to be frustrating for you, obviously, as a musician. That's how you make your money. And, you know, w- what have you kind of been doing to kind of make ends meet in this? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're a little bit comfortable, but it's still got to be a little bit tough and rugged right now. Oh, oh it's, it's definitely rugged. Uh, you know, uh, with everything I do, there's a lot of overhead. So, you know, the, it's draining the purse, or as they say, you know. The cool thing is, you know, I have like an online concert series that's going to be starting up in June. And you know, I just invite all the supporters, all the people who love the purple music, purple sound, just support us. I mean, make a donation. We're going to have it set up through Patreon. And, uh, nice. you know, yeah, you'll have all those links. And But what it is is, you know, people can just donate to the cause because it costs me money to put these concerts on and stuff like that. So, you know, that that's how we're just looking to do it. And I'm even, you know, I got I got big plans. I mean, the revolution online, I mean, we I got some big plans coming. Oh, so you pl- so the revolution is planning an online event at no, some point. No, I am planning. Oh, it. you are <laughs> planning it. Okay. Exactly. I <laughs> see and and I'm going to incorporate them in it. Probably not the first couple of concerts, but down the road, figuring out sponsorship and what have you so that we can make it happen with the revolution. Because I know everybody would love to see that. And, oh, yeah, um, and a couple others from the, from you know, a couple other bands from the old camp. So I'm not going to mention no names because I don't want to give it away. I want to keep it exciting. Oh, yeah. But yeah, we're going to do some some revolution versus stuff. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that sounds like a plan. We're yeah. definitely keep definitely keep on the on on the Facebook and for the announcements on that for sure. But you absolutely you mentioned the book that is coming out. I believe it's going to be coming out in September. The My Life in the Purple Kingdom. What was the I guess the tipping point that that you said to yourself? I I really need to to document my adventures here. What what was the tipping yeah. point that said Yeah, I I think I need to do this right now. Well. That book is about 12 years old. I mean, I wrote that long time ago and uh, when, when Prince was still here. And I had told him I was writing it, you know, because I had gone through so much in my life at such a young age, you know, and I needed a way to, you know, I wasn't going to go, you know, I've, I've had therapy, you know, and, and I don't like sitting in the shrink's office and talking to him about, cause it doesn't make me feel any better. Right. And I needed a way to express what I was experiencing at such a young age with everything happening so fast. And I, you know, I was forced to grow up so quickly and uh, a lot happened that people don't know about. Right. Some, sometimes you could see it on various photos and, you know, various videos. You could see the mood. And now that uh, when I finished it, 
I let him know that I had it and he wanted to read it. Unfortunately, he passed. And so I put it on hold again. And then finally I said, you know what? It's time. I need to, I need to put this out. But don't get me wrong. This is no Prince Bash book. This is a very, very real story. As real as you can get. And it's going to help people see how a young kid had a dream. And when you put all the prejudices and all the negativity aside, you really reach for that dream, that goal. You, you can make it happen, but it comes at a cost. Right. And, that's, and that's what this book is really showing our young ones. You can do this, but what price are you willing to pay to enter into different avenues of this business? Because it is harsh. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, I, I know you came on. A lot of people don't know exactly when you came on and when you left. And, and technically, you came on in between Dirty Mind and Controversy. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had to like learn all three of his first three albums, pretty much almost like a crash course in order to go ahead and, and start the process of, <laughs> so, yeah. so, so tell, so tell me how you're like frazzled at that point in time to think, oh, well, this is great. This is a, this yeah. is a great opportunity, but at the same time, it's like, holy crap, how am I yeah, going to do yeah. all this? Well, that, you know, and, and, you know, in the book, I go into real detail about how that story developed. You know, it's a nice story within itself. But when I got that call from him, I never in a million years knew, thought that he would call me. I, you know, he had auditioned a lot of bass players, and I know a lot of bass players that were incredible. So my first thought was, why me? But I wasn't going to argue with it. But what it did was it disrupted my plans for what I was doing. Uh, you know, my group Maserati was basically uh, me living vicariously <laughs> through them because I decided to go with Prince. And so that's where that group came from. That was what I would have become for myself. And, and so when he called me for that audition, I had to really think about okay, do I want to give up my own pursuits and help him uh, build his, or do I want to just stay where I'm, you know, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a choice I had to make. Because yeah, you were and, thrown right into that whole, the whole scenario where you guys were opening up for the Rolling Stones. I mean, you, that was, what was that probably one of your first half dozen gigs before you were it, staying out for that? It was my first gig, the you very know, and, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, oh we, we we did we did a warm up show at First Avenue, but that didn't count because no. I, I'm in a local bar band. You know, I, <laughs> I I I played in a band called Fantasy, so you know, playing in the local bars that was nothing to me. You know, that was not, I was already doing that, so that that show that was fun. That was a piece of cake. When I got in front of ninety thousand people, that was the first time I had ever <laughs> ever experienced anything like that. Oh my gosh! And when you first, when you were started there, I mean, I, I, we can probably talk now. This, the money's probably not going to measure up to what it is today. But how much were you getting paid out of the gate to do those gigs with him? <laughs> 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 I'm just curious. Uh, you don't have to answer. Me, I'm just that curious. Made, that made me choke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, here, here's here's the thing. I was never hired to be in his band. See, I wasn't, I wasn't a hired man. I was, he, I was asked to be in his band. 
he was forming a band. He didn't have a name for it yet. He was, but he was forming a band. It was me, Des, Lisa, Bobby Z, and Matt Pink. Okay, he was forming a band, and he put me on a retainer so that I wouldn't have to go and jump into other stuff to survive. Right. So, you know, he gave me like, if I remember correctly, it was like $230, a, a week or something like that. It, you know, I don't really remember that. I know it was like two, 200 and something dollars a week. Yeah, which is kind of tough to swallow nowadays, but you know, back then yeah. that was probably that was probably pretty decent money for the guy that you're you were 17, 18 at the time. How old were you? 18, but 18. it was tough because I was making more than that <laughs> at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> I mean, I worked at 7-Eleven. I had, uh, you know, I worked at the uh, the Pancake House. I had a band. I mean, I was a hustler, you know. So oh, absolutely, yeah. You have to yeah. be. You have to be. Yeah. You're gonna be the musician. You, you, there has to be some side hustles going on, or you're just not gonna. Uh, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's all the time. And I asked yeah. you, you said that you, you know, your parents, you know, had quite a little bit of a, a religious upbringing of sorts. And I asked Dr. Fink um, when he was on the show, I said, you know, when you were hearing these songs about, you know, incest and in some people's mind, this borderline religious blasphemy and stuff, what is going mm -hmm. through your mind when you're playing that material from the stage, especially when you're thinking, uh, there may, my parents might hear this or, you know, cause I, you're thinking about an impressionable 18 year old and you're kind of yeah. hearing all these things that you've never heard on the radio before. What, what is going through your mind when you're, when that, when all that's going on? <laughs> well, I just want to make one correction. I was 19. Okay. Uh, yeah, because I had just turned 19. <clears throat> but what was crazy about that time period was um, I thought it was blasphemy. Uh, I did not like what we were doing. And so did Des, if I remember correctly, too. But that was a little exactly. bit later on, yeah. A little later on. See, it, it took me a while to get where Des was, uh, but I had felt the same way. I did not like it that I would go to a concert and there's people masturbating or giving blowjobs in the <laughs> right where I could see them. You know, I'm like watching this stuff. <laughs> Wait a second. Stage. That like, was going all... on out in the crowd while you oh, were playing. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. God. It was like a. It was like being on a porn. <laughs> you know, in a porno show or something. Oh, my God. I mean, I I have stories where I. That wasn't I, in the book. I, no, no. There, you know what? There's a lot of stuff that I had to keep it clean, you know. But, man, I witnessed uh, the craziest stuff from that stage. And, you know, and, and, and what was driving it? What was driving it was the sexual energy that we were putting off. Right. And so I just kind of dealt with that, though. I dealt with it and, uh, you know, kind of shoved it down pushed it in a little corner but it always bothered me it really did always it was always on my mind yeah it seemed like i, I remember seeing the show from 1982 that capitol theater black and white concert uh, thing and I, I don't remember i didn't the first time that i saw prince in concert was the 1999 tour mm -hmm. uh and then of course 
almost every tour ever since then with just like a handful of them that I happened to miss. But mm-hmm. when I saw that Capitol Theater one, when he was, you know, licking the guitar up and down for a good portion of the show, and I was thinking to myself, you know, it's really highly sexually charged. And, and for a teenager like yourself to be in the middle of all that, you got to be thinking, oh my God. Oh, oh yeah and what's going through your mind because you have a couple you had these other bands that you were working with uh where you're thinking man we've been doing it all wrong or or, or was oh, yeah. it like was like get the wheels turning at that point that that's exactly what happened and it didn't you know i didn't get this idea that you got to be sexual to, to sell music but it helped me to understand i'm watching uh i'm watching the genius at work here i didn't see i didn't realize how much of a genius Prince was. I, I didn't understand it until I actually worked with him. When you see this guy at work, it's like he's not from here. He's from another planet. What What is going on here? And um, to see how he understood manipulation, he understood how to market and manipulate people to think and feel the way he wanted them to feel, you know, and he tapped into every, every subculture there was. He tapped in, he knew exactly how to tap in and he knew how to pull them out. And, and when I saw then came vanity six, I was like, Whoa, dude, really? (laughs) (laughs) I love the story about when you first met her. That was great. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I'm saving a lot of things for people so they can actually read it in the book, but that's a great story. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I'm on stage. Sometimes I would, uh, you know, back Vanity Six, I would be behind stage with Prince and we would be jamming. You know, Prince would be on guitar and keyboards. I would be on bass. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm behind. So, I, I, you know, what a glimpse. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, <laughs> I got to see him up close and personal. And so it was like, whoa, what oh, are yeah. you doing? I was like, you don't feel bad about putting these girls out here like this and you know it was just part of that Uh, he he understood what was going to work and it did work he grabbed he grabbed the american young girls by the heart and he said this is what it takes if you want to be sexy it wasn't wasn't a great message but at the time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, at the time, the young girls were looking to grasp onto something. And here he comes with Susan Moosey, Brenda, and Vanity. And it's like the world was like taken by storm. Yeah, everybody was trying to be Vanity Six. Yeah, some of that stuff like, um, you know, walking out with teddy bears and things like that kind of had that borderline. Oof, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you, I mean, we left the concert. I, I This is no joke. We had a road case on tour with us full of bras and panties. <laughs> that you didn't start the show with. <laughs> no. And, and, and so by the Just end of the clear. tour, yeah, by the end of the tour, we would, it, it was amazing because it was overflowing. It, it was so full. <laughs> And I was like, you know what? That that's crazy right there. 
Oh my gosh! And I know you had a lot of difficulties in with that. I mean, not just that. I mean, you dealing with you know the hormonal things that are going on with yourself as well. But you know, there yeah. was also some other conflict things that you made a lot of references in the book about how people kept referring to you early on about the guy who replaced Andre Simone. Yeah. And, you know, was there a time, and we can go into some of the details of that, but I, I, I'm curious as when was the first time that you actually met him and how did that meeting go? I mean, was there any hard feelings or anything? Me, me and Andre? Yeah. Oh, see, I, I knew Andre already. So what, what happened was Andre asked me to play bass in his band. See, before Prince even called me. And and so Andre was actually one of the ones who referenced Prince to reach out to me, which I think Prince was already looking at me. But um, if I didn't uh, land that gig, I was most likely going to end up playing with Andre Simone. Mm. So I already knew him. So, you know, me and him already had good rapport. You know, he was just ready to move on and do his own thing. Where me, I was young, new, fresh to the biz. I was just coming in. And so I looked up to these guys. So Andre, to me, was like a mentor, just like Sonny Thompson, you know. Right. Yeah. Now, Sonny had been around for a while, too. You know, I I didn't want – there was a topic that I meant to talk to you about when we were talking about Des Dickerson and some of the – just the religious – upbringings that that both of you had had and how conflicted that you felt you were Mm -hmm. and everybody Mm -hmm. is kind of really familiar with the story at this point in time after you know post 1999 when des just kind of you know really just wanted to throw up his hands and just say you know look i i just can't do this anymore did he ever come and talk to you about what he was feeling before that whole exchange happened before he stepped away or did he ever did you guys kind of feel like you were at least joined in that belief system well, not not me. I mean, he would talk to probably Bobby or, uh, uh, you know, Matt. But me, I, I was very quiet. It, it was all so new to me. My mind was blown 90% of the time. You know, and I had to get on stage and figure out how to play that off. <laughs> you know, every night it was like, whoa, okay, this is, this is heavy. And... Um, so my belief system wasn't intact at that time. I, I was just, I, you know, I grew up around, like, uh, uh, I grew up around certain beliefs, but they didn't, they didn't drive my life. You know, I wasn't in that. Uh, that didn't come until I got, you know, maybe around 1988, somewhere around. It came later as I started to grow. But Des, he was a little more seated in his religious convictions. So, you know, his his conscience probably took a toll on me, and he just realized he had to get out. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I know that for a while there, he actually went off and started his own Christian record label, and, you know, that, that had you know, pretty good success. So, you know, you know mm-hmm. good on him. I mean, I, I think it's good if you feel like you just stand by your convictions and your beliefs. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. you're, you're always going to be happy with yourself. But I, I, even when I see interviews nowadays, I still feel like Des really kind of second guessed. Maybe he jumped the gun and I, I, I don't know. And yeah. It's just just the kind of vibe that I get as far as him reliving some of those moments. And I don't really have a lot of uh, remorse when he talks. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, yeah. He's definitely yeah. in the moment for sure. 
Yeah. Um, but you stayed the course and you were, I, again, in the book, it talks about how you had all these speaking parts in Purple Rain that got <laughs> that got cut as well. Do you even, and you had actually, you said you were prepped. Do you even remember what some of those lines were? No. <laughs> was too long. That was too long ago. Well, and then you talk about suppressed memory. <laughs> I, I, I actually have a script. I have the actual Purple Rain script. Uh, I just haven't read back through it to see what my lines were, but I actually have it. And, um, and were they yeah. really significant scenes that? No. Okay. <laughs> no, just, just just small little stuff that didn't even sound like me. It's like when when El Magnoli was working with Prince on that. Um, I was like, I don't even talk like this. This and that that. Well, I wouldn't say that. And so a lot of it got changed improv, you know, because uh, I had to be me. But there was a there's a deeper story even behind that because you know as everybody noticed, Ron Mark had no. No lines in the movie. Well, you know, there, there's there's underlying reasons for all that. And see, the, the, those were traumas that I had to deal with coming up. Uh, that was pain, inner pain that I had to deal with. And again, that's why I wrote the book, because I needed to heal from a lot of the stuff that I experienced myself. Not in anger, just just to get it out of my system. Because when you get excited and you're on top of the world and you help build an empire because mark my words. There is no doubt about it. We all contributed to that. That, that was no one man show. Purple rain became what it was because we all put 1000% into it. Each right. one of us, yeah. we gave, we gave it our, everything, our personalities, our musical talents, Everything that we had in the vault, we put it in that starting from 1982. Yeah. See, we started working on that junk way before it hit. And it was a collaborative. And so when you put all that into something and then you wake up one day and you realize that you standing on pretty much the outskirts of it, then it starts to mess with you inside internally. Yeah. And so that that's what a lot of my story is about, just how I was feeling. I'm expressing myself and expressing to people from my viewpoint what it felt like to, to be in that position, you know, so that people understand it was, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, and I think the book really communicates that really well as far as – and one of the things I like to preface this with before people go and run out and get the book, I, I everybody should get this book because it's really good. It's, I mean, it's, it's a good quick read and it kind of gives you a, a little bit different of an angle to kind of see things with. But one of the things that, that has to be prefaced is that if you are one of those people that believes that Prince can do no wrong and that he is just he is just a saint and, and – you really need to be cautious because this is re these are real stories. These are real yeah. stories about things that have happened. And a lot of people yeah. kind of, you know, felt a little bit some sort of way when they read Maite's book as well. They were like, oh, I just I can't even, you know. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. you know, there is a real side to some of the things that go on in this music industry. And, you know, he, you know, the story between about 
the song Kiss, and that's all folklore right now, and not folklore, but it's it's a reality. And yeah, you kind of yeah. go into detail about about that. And for those that don't know, real short, short version is that Prince gave the song to you. You guys reworked it into the the hit that it is now, and then he took it back. And then yeah, so and what ended up ultimately happening was you guys didn't even get credit for even putting putting it together and Zero so royalties right to exactly this, to this day and, and, you know it's always funny because whenever we play the long version of kiss on the on the radio station and i hear him go maserati i'm like you absolutely. even say that you're there absolutely <laughs> he's right there you even said it that's all the, all the background vocals that's all maserati yeah it's just and that just yeah. it just boggles the mind but i and i know that you had a lot of issues with prince and various things there's a lot of stories in there that you know are, are going to catch some people off guard and you know I, I think i think a lot of it has to do with some of the you know neglect and some of the things that were left off is you know specifically with the music crediting things so mm-hmm. in, in in regard in a lot of people don't know this, but you also played on Girls and Boys that went uncredited, if that's correct. I, I started the song. Right. I, 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 I wrote the, the basic structure of that song right. in, a, in a jam session that I was having with myself in the drum machine. That is, you know, and, and I've seen this, but we saw that before, too, with Jesse Johnson when he made the entire demo of Jungle Love on his little eight track or four track or whatever it was. Yeah. And he played it for Prince, and the next thing you know, it was like, <laughs> okay. So, I mean, so, and I know that you work with a lot of musicians now, currently. So yeah. how does that kind of, from all those lessons that you learned as far as, you know, the crediting of music, how does that affect how you do business with artists that you work with now? How I do business and how I did business, even when I left and went to Motown and everything that I touched from that point forward, um, I produce, you know, I have a pretty decent track record of production, but it was always 50-50. I didn't even play the game. I don't care if you wrote a sentence, 50-50. Right. See, 50-50 on the lyrics, 50-50 on the music, if you contributed anything to that music. I don't care if you just came up with a guitar lick, 50% on the music. And because and, fair is fair, instead right. of getting into all of these you know, cat and mouse games, you know, and this pushing and shoving about who wrote what. And I wrote a second of this and I wrote that melody over there, man, 50, 50. Let's just, is that fair? That's fair. Yeah. I mean, cause we're, when you think about done. kiss, I mean, cause with kiss, that was Prince's biggest hit ever. And I'm not, yeah. and not, not to rub salt in the wound, but that was his yeah. biggest hit ever. So every time you Absolutely. hear that song come on the radio, you gotta be like, I, I can't listen, this. can't listen to it. <laughs> I don't, I don't listen to it. I turn the channel, you know, because it, it is, uh, you know, when you, when you write something, when he came to me, he said, he said, this will be a bigger hit on us, plural, us, than it will be for your group Maserati. I said, definitely. And I'm jumping for joy because I'm like, finally, I got a song. I'm right. getting, I'm getting royalties from Prince and the Revolution. That's huge. Oh yeah. That's a life. That's that's retirement. <laughs> you know, and and then to to not get anything. Uh, as a matter of fact, when it first came out, I screamed so loud. I think they had to do a reprint because <laughs> when it first came out, it said thanks to Brown Mark for hand claps. How do you think? <laughs> 
thank you. How do you how do you thank me for hand claps when I gave you the song back in its natural form? <laughs> you know, and so those are the kind of battles he and I had. But don't get me wrong, he and I were friends. And, and that was just two friend brothers duking it out. And that's just what it was. He was always going to win in the end because he was the king. I was just a pawn. You know, I was a soldier. And so, you know, hey, can you can you go up against your general and win? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not typically, yeah. no. So let's yeah. talk about the things that you can win with. I, well, there is one thing I've always wanted to ask you. Whatever happened to the group Mercedes that you were working with? what happened with them you know I'll sum it up very easily this business is dirty and when people saw the success I was having with Maserati um, I got sent to Europe by Prince uh, for a long period of time for whatever reason and Pete the Wolves came in and dissected everything from the Brown camp They were picking it apart like wolves. And when I got back, everything was fragmented. Everything that I had built was fragmented. And I had to try to piece it together. They just didn't make the cut because it was, there was too much damage done. You know? Yes. A lot of people were asking about, I've had a couple people ask about Maserati in general and we're, well, first off, we'll talk about the potential of this reunion that you've got kind of working in the background and get mm-hmm. people a little bit excited here. But I do want to talk about the the initial demise back in, I guess this is late 80s, uh, of Maserati and exactly, you know, what transpired there. Because people were asking me, well, whatever happened to Maserati? And, and I, you know, I kind of summed it up just like you just did, where, you know, Prince had kind of took you over to be part of, I guess, the whole thing that was going on with Parade. And then there was all this stuff that was going on and they were, you know, Maserati themselves were touring in the United States and they're just, they weren't getting paid correctly or, you know, what exactly all happened by the time that you got back that it was just, you know, it it was just not able to be repaired. I was, I was out of the loop, you know, remember back then, the, the, you know, no cell phones, in, right? I, yeah, there's no cell phones. An international call, you know, it's two hundred dollars <laughs> from <laughs> a hotel too. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so I was really out of touch. And every week I tried to go home. It's like, no, he wants you to do a, a promo, you know, or a photo op or whatever. It was always something. And you know, so I never could get back. But what was so ironic is. All the time I was stuck over there, you only see me one time in the movie that's in the end where I walk in the door with my coat hanging over my back. That's it. All of that work, all of them months you got me over there, and that's all I get is a a cameo where I walk in with my jacket on my back. Um, And so by the time I got back to the States, everything was fragmented. Uh, Maserati was, they imploded. Uh, without me, you got to remember, I was the leader of the Maserati group, not Terry Casey. I was. Maserati was in my band. And um, so by the time I got back, the leader had been gone so long, it just imploded. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't know how many lawsuits 
and how much money I lost just trying to repair the damage that had been done. You know? Was it venues that were suing you for not showing up and things All like that? All kinds of stuff, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I lost an entire sound system. They, they were on the road with a truck and a sound system that belonged to me. Gone. I haven't seen it since. Oh, yeah. You did tell the story. This is one of the stories that I can reveal that was in the book that you said that the bus or whatever broke down with all the equipment in it, and they just yeah. left the bus there. and Just left uh, just, it. <laughs> I, you know, and then, and then, then to find out years later, you know, a lot of them have the equipment. So, I mean, there's a lot oh of, God. oh yeah, there's a lot of dirt that went down, but then there's a lot of finger pointing, you know, hey, Brown, you screwed us. And no, you screwed me because <laughs> I lost a half a million dollars trying to keep you guys afloat. So a lot of people don't know the real story. Yeah. You know, and that's my next book. My next book is really going to dig in deep to a lot of the dirt of the industry. Now, did you feel like in when this was going on, once you got back, did, did it ever cross your mind to think, did Prince, was this all part of Prince's plan was to get me away from this mix so that I couldn't, did that ever cross your mind at all? Not at the time. You got to understand when he, he, when he found out I had the group, he came, you know, flew me out to LA and picked me up at the airport. I'm like, oh, what's this about? Anytime, you know, he's picking me up at the airport, there's a conversation that has to be had. And, you know, he tells me, I know you have a band. And then he goes into this brother, this brotherhood talk, like we, we need to stick together. And, you know, that's what's wrong with black people. We don't stick together and blah, blah, blah. He says, you should sign them to Paisley. Biggest mistake of my life. Mm-hmm. Because Paisley destroyed my band. They dismantled them from every from every angle. That company, that record company dismantled them to a point where we dealt more with Warner Brothers than with them. They just try to keep it afloat. Yeah, and, you know? I, and I know a lot of people would say, well, you know, Brown Mark should be thankful for everything that Prince did for him. And and I've even said straight out, I, I've said, you know, I, there's no doubt that he's thankful to Prince for everything that he, you know, the opportunities that he was given. But there was just some things that were going on there that just, <laughs> you know, it kind of would yeah. make anybody, you know, yeah. go on a, yeah. a rampage. So <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I like what you said. Um I, you know, I, I, no ill will, ill harm to anybody. I respect Prince. He's my brother. Like I said, me and him were on good terms when he passed. Me and him, we talked all the time. He, I don't know how many times he's flown me out to Paisley and said, this is your house too. So for those people who want to talk all that crazy, dumb stuff, they don't know nothing. See, because they weren't there. They don't know that I had a relationship with my brother. And that's how brothers fight. That's just what we do. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to like it. But that's that's the truth and that's how we fought. You know, what am I supposed to do? Lie, write a book and lie? No, I'm just gonna tell people what happened. You know, if you don't like it, well, don't read it, you know, I mean, because that's just my attitude. Yeah, no, and and I completely understand. And it's refreshing because, you know, sometimes I read books and I'm not going to name names, but there's been a few people that 
you know, I've interviewed over the past that have had books come out and you read them and you go that, you know, I know for a fact that there was a lot of things, you know, negative things that were mentioned. And that's why Maite's book was really refreshing. And your book was really refreshing too, to kind of show this, not only this human side to Prince, but also flaws and all, but to also kind of, you know, help people to understand some of the things that you need to be wary of, because as much as he fought against, you know, the music industry and labels that were doing him wrong and this, that, and the other, he wasn't, he was not blameless in a lot of things that he did. He was, he could be pretty hardcore sometimes about protecting his music and protecting the way that he kind of dealt with a lot of his artists. And he was really, he was a control freak. No, no doubt about that. Absolutely. I used to tell him all the time, you know, because he's always, this was his number one line. Why is it always about the money, Mark? Why, how come everything's about the money? I said, because I don't have any. <laughs> I said, I'm not driving a Rolls Royce, bro, in a purple, purple Dodge and, you know, and I don't have the big house and everything like you. I said, so why can't it be about the money? And he's like, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, it can't, you know, the money will come. It can't be about the money. I said, Prince, charity begins at home. Charity <laughs> begins at home. <laughs> we are brothers. You told me, you know, that you would take care of your brother, take care of your brother. And so that was me and Prince's battle for goodness. 25 years, yeah, but we loved each other. See, so I don't care what people think because I know at the end of the day, I sleep good. I know at the end of the day, all my friends that knew Prince know that he spoke highly of me. See, I know at the end of the day, all my friends know I speak highly of him. And he was going to read this book before it came out, whether he liked it or not, because that's just the relationship he and I had. Yeah. How many and pieces? Had, were, how many pieces were in this book where you just said, "Nah, I'm not going to write that part." <laughs> oh, it's it's been edited. <laughs> it's it's been edited. Trust me, you know, because uh, a lot of the stuff was, you know, you know, I I don't believe in bashing nobody. There's just some things you just don't need to talk about, and and so uh, when I was right when when the editors gave it back to me and I read it and I was like okay can we clean this up here and can we clean that up and they were like yeah and and they agreed and so we we cleaned it up because you know it ain't a bashing book that's not what it was about the the book is an inspiration it's an inspirational uh, and it's meant to inspire young artists and it's also meant to shine a, a, a very positive light on a genius Oh yeah, absolutely. You can't take that away from him. He was he literally was a genius and and I can really think of no other uh like you put it best. He was an alien from another planet. It is it nobody else has that drive and that it's just I, I've never seen anything like it and I don't think we ever will in our lifetimes or anything to come. It's just I don't think so. <laughs> I I agree. It's just I mean, insane. he was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. When you read the book, you 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 read my reaction when that Pittsburgh that first gig uh, in front of our audience, you know, away from the Stones. I saw him come out on that stage, and his little boot was bouncing back and forth on on the stage, and this curtain went up, and I just looked at him and I said, "This dude is cold blooded." <laughs> you know, I just I I just shook my head. I was like, "This cat." He's a bad, 
man, what he ain't human. <laughs> and we, we started jamming and he was just cool. He was so cool. I was just tripping out, you know? The, the story that I, I laughed out loud was when you were talking about playing with the Rolling Stones and the, and the show was not going good. You're getting, you're getting things, all kinds of things thrown at you. And then he decides, you look down at the set list and the next song is Jack You Off. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, this is probably not a good idea. <laughs> it's just, you know, because there's a bunch of guys out here. You got a bunch of testosterone there for the Rolling yeah. Stones. Not really a whole bunch of people are familiar with the term jacking somebody off as far as, you know, a Absolutely. guy doing it to a girl. So they're going to think there's something, you know, something homoerotic going on here. And this is not, <laughs> so when you look down at the set list, what are you thinking? You're thinking, oh, shit. I was like, I said, Prince. I said, Prince, are you sure you want to do? He said, no, it's going to be good. It's going to be. I said, no, no. I said, jack you off. I mean, that, you don't do that to a girl, okay? That's, you know, I'm, we're talking, you know, the 80s. That, that was, it's the opposite way around. Right. <laughs> I'm like, you know, but he got up there and did it anyways. And, ooh, that reaction was horrid. <laughs> I was dodging Jack Daniel bottles and, man, shoes and, you know, oh mi gosh. milk, milk cartons full of milk. And, I mean, <laughs> that... I was... I got hit with a grapefruit. I mean, it was terrible. I got hit. I got hit with a bag of Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> so you weren't collecting bras and panties at that point. <laughs> nah, man, that that was rugged. And we, oh we were there. Everybody was flipping the bird. They was flipping us the bird. Oh my oh. god! <laughs> and, then, and, and then I heard a I heard a soundboard clip, and I could hear the. Uh, the guys, the engineers talking, and they was just, they was just dogging us. I was like, man. <laughs> well, because, and there's a big portion of that story, too, that uh, I had read elsewhere, not in your book, where I guess Prince was so upset with the show at one point that he got on the plane and left and went mm -hmm. back to Minneapolis. And then it was, you know, the band, I don't know if you were in that mix, but the band and also Mick Jagger himself had to call Prince to kind of convince him to come back and finish it out do you i mean how much yeah. of that do, process do you remember that yeah see I, I remember it very differently i think that uh, lisa had told that story um i remember it very differently because you gotta understand too i was the young one and so right. yeah. um uh, i had a different experience with him because i i remember when he when he took off like that I was in the car with him briefly because he was embarrassed. And he told me, he says, don't let this get to you. This, uh, this is not what it's like with our crowd, with our audience. Right. And, and I, right. I think yeah. he, I think he was so worried about how I was taking it. You know, is this what it's going to be like? I might as well go back to the bar band, you know? <laughs> And so I remember it very differently, not to dispel the story. It probably did happen that way. But um, um, I was in a different world than, right. than the rest of the band because I was the newbie. Right. Yeah. So you weren't going to yeah. be involved in there probably wasn't going to be 
any involvement from you in getting him back since you really no. didn't have a whole bunch of pull with him at this point. Well, yeah, he, had, so. and he had already talked to me. Right. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. yeah, he already told me what was going on. That's crazy. You know, I, I had no idea he went to the airport and got on a plane. I had no clue. Yeah, man. So that's a yeah. lot. Well, I, I, I want to talk. I, I want to talk before I let you go. I do want to talk about Maserati because mm-hmm. I was blessed enough to be among those. Uh, was I guess we were going to be capping out at fifty, but we actually was a little less than that in in Atlanta when you Maserati did the show at the studio. And I was able to get to see Maserati perform live at the studio in Atlanta. I think you know you and I talked briefly when we were there too. We did a little video and everything. Oh, okay. And it was it yeah. was it was you, me, and Tony Christian came up behind yeah. me. So, well, one of the things is is that people kept asking me, so is this going to be happening? Are are they going on the road? Are they putting together a show? So (laughs) what all is happening? Because I know a lot of people are excited. I I know we have this scenario right now where, you know, live performances aren't aren't going really well right now, but what is going on with Maserati? Okay. Let let me, I'm going to clarify this one once and for all. Okay. Maserati is defunct. Maserati does not exist. Um, when I, when I put them back together a few years ago to try to, you know, put to make this thing work, it, it's just drama after drama after drama. I lost $47,000. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> 47,000. I had already lost a half a million dollars on them back in the eighties. I'm not going to lose no more money. So it was, it's done. But what I had decided to do was keep the band and call it the bad boys of Paisley. So that's what you're seeing. uh, The bad boys of Paisley. So uh, members of Maserati will play with the bad boys of Paisley and will do Maserati music. Uh, You know, I'm hoping that one day I can get Terry back get him back on stage. that would be really exciting. And I, I think I'll be able to accomplish that as long as, you know, they want to play ball. If they, you know, if, if it's that same old stuff from back in the day, I'm just not interested. I'm too old for that. Yeah. I you can know? only imagine. And I know you also have to work around the schedule that's going on with the revolution as well. And yeah, I imagine absolutely. that's, you know, it's, I, is that on pause at the moment? I would imagine, but are you going to yeah, continue because one of the things I noticed about the tour when the revolution came through Atlanta is that the revolution is only covering songs that were done as the revolution. So any, anything that falls outside of what was done with the revolution, not MPG, but anything that falls outside of that revolution is, is just simply just not getting covered. It, yeah. Do you, do you see that potentially being, um, or, and I think I, I asked you this at that show in Atlanta too. I asked you, I said, is there any potential that there would be new music coming down the pike with the existing members of the revolution? Cause you've got an amazing set between Wendy and Lisa and yourself and Fink. I mean, you've got a pretty amazing eclectic group of songwriters that could yeah. obviously be able to really turn this up and make this just amazing. So is there any potential that that may happen in the future? Uh, I'm just going to put it to you this way. I'm trying. I'm hopeful but it's hard to pull five bodies together and get them to think the same, especially when we all have our own lives. 
So this idea of the revolution getting back together and doing an album is something I've been preaching uh, for quite a while. And there's a there's you know there's some within the group that want to, but then there's some that just ain't feeling it. And so you can't fight that. You know, all we can do is be hopeful that everybody jumps on board one day and and we get that party started. Yeah, I just think um, there's so much there because I mean I've heard some of the outtakes and some of the things that you know were out there that uh, were just amazing, amazing songs, and absolutely. that that have not been released and have just kind of been sitting in the vault that you know we got the opportunity to hear, and yeah, uh, like like all my dreams and things like that that were just kind of uh, absolutely incredible tunes. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think <laughs> I would totally completely be down for that for sure, and I know everybody yeah. else would be too. So I know we can wrap things up, but I just kind of let everybody know the book is called my life in the purple kingdom. It comes out in September. And, you know, as I said before, hardcore Prince fans that believe he can do no wrong will probably take issue with some of the chapters in the book, but it's really important to know that there's no doubt that Prince was a genius and just one of the most unbelievable musicians to and and composers to ever walk the face of the earth. He is just, there will never, ever be any, anybody like him ever again but it's really important to know that he's human and it's really refreshing to kind of hear some of these other stories that uh, most people are kind of scared to tell but you know that's what it is and we've seen this backlash. yeah we've seen some backlash before so there's no surprises there but uh, ultimately what do you want i know you said inspirational was that was one of the key adjectives that you used but ultimately what do you want people to take away after reading the book I want people to, uh, for young ones, I want young ones to be able to realize that whatever you put your mind to, you're going to go through some battles, but you can win the war. You, you'll lose some battles, but you can win the war. In the long run, you can really build a decent career in this industry, but you're going to go through some battles. So, you know, I'm kind of uh, spelling that out. At the same time, I'm letting people know exactly what you said. He's a human being. Yep. Okay. None of us are perfect. And when you're in a family, we fight. I don't know a family on this earth that doesn't fight, you know, with your siblings. So it's, it's just part of life. We fought. We laughed about half the stories in this book. That's why I don't understand. I, uh, somebody had said something uh, a few weeks ago and said, I, I saw some posts that Brown Mark is angry with, with Prince and he's, you know, trashing him in the memoirs. That is, that is such a lie. Yeah, it's not. Any, anybody that's read this book knows good and well I'm not trashing Prince. No. This, this is, I'm elevating him because he is one of the most influential people of my life, but he was human. And for me to leave out the human side of that story, then it would be an irrelevant story. Right. You know, if anything, this is gonna, if anything, this is going to make you love him more because you're going to see the human side of him. Yep. You know, and, and how he interacted with someone who was just like him. Same ambition, same drive, same work ethic. See, me and him come from the same 
stack of bread, you know, the same package of bread. <laughs> cut from you know, the same we, cloth, yeah, all this. That's all this. it, man. <laughs> that's it. We was cut from the north side. We was battling bands, and we was coming up in the racism and the whole shot. We all come from the same thing. Terry and Jimmy, uh, Alexander O'Neill, uh, Prince, Stokely. We all come from the same place. Andre, Simone, Des. We, we all know what it's about. So when we talk about each other, we're not bashing. We're just telling the story. So people, you know, I'm hoping that people get from this story that this is the human side of a man that I worked with and he was a great man. He was awesome. Yep. That's what I want people to take away from that. Yeah. You do talk a lot in the book about, you know, some of the racial tensions in Minneapolis back in the eighties and just all over the country as it is right now. <laughs> and, when, and, and when you see all this, the, the laundry list of news stories nowadays, you know, with Brown and Freddie Gray and Ahmaud Arbery and George mm-hmm. Floyd and all this stuff, you mm-hmm. know, I, I think that we've come a long, long way but mm-hmm. it's still not nearly, nearly far enough. What, what do you, what do you think that we? I, I don't, I don't think anybody truly knows the answer to this, but I'll ask it anyways. What do you think that the right direction is for us to go to kind of get to some type of resolution about the racial uh, tension that we have here in the states? I'll say this, and I'll say this is strictly my opinion. Uh, for the record, it is my opinion that this is not a racial problem. This is not a black problem. This is a white problem. This is a problem within the systemic establishment of white America. See, it it was created this way. Now we have the perfect storm. Yeah. Boom. There you have it. You know, it's now it's exploding. It's backfiring. But it's the perfect storm in, in the only way that it's going to change is if white, Caucasian, whatever you want to call it, really realize that, you know, the that it is a white problem. Yeah. I mean, people have to understand that. And t- until, until white people stand up and fix that problem, it'll never get fixed. We don't have the power to fix it. Yeah, and I think the you know, speaking as as a white male, I think one of the issues that I see regularly is the lack of understanding that that white folks have with black culture. There mm-hmm. is there's things that they see that they don't understand or that they can't grasp, and they say, "Well, why is he dressing that way? Why is he acting that way? Why is why is he driving his car that way? Why is he doing this? Why is he doing that?" And and I think that over analysis of just culture and that whole clash of how differently yeah. we do things from the way that we communicate to the way, not everybody there's, there's, ton, there's, there's tons of instances where that's not yeah. the case, but there is Absolutely. a cultural divide that white people don't understand. And unfortunately some of those white people that don't understand it are in positions of authority and they yeah. get scared. They can get concerned. They overreact and they do things and mm. just they lash out. And the end result is kind of what we're experiencing here. Absolutely. I, I just think it's just it, you. I think yeah. the core of this is really kind of understanding cultural differences. We, we, and it's not just 
you know, I, I know in this particular case we're talking about black and white, but I think the other thing yeah. about this is is that you know we've learned to kind of work around it from everything from Italians and German and and everything else. But for yeah. some reason, there is a really big divide about the cultural differences between black culture and white yeah, culture. Yeah. It's but just me, so different. Let me, let me let me just say this in in. You know, for listeners that might want to agree with me, which, you know, there's going to be a lot that don't, but you don't take 400 years of oppression. <laughs> One day say you're emancipated, get out of here. You don't you don't rape men in a public square and sell them like cattle rip little babies from mothers and separate families for entire generations after generations and then release them through an emancipation act and say, we're going to give you 40 acres and a mule. And then within 12 months, take it back and say, uh, no, we made a mistake. Figure it out on your own. And then expect that culture who does not have that base anymore, an educational base, to thrive in the matter of a decade or two. It's going to take uh, generations before that, you know, that stigma, everything about what happened before uh, uh, we learn what happened and then are able to work through it. That's going to take generations. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm talking about within the black culture, but now in the white culture, it's 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 almost forgotten like it's almost like saying the holocaust didn't happen they all you know all i ever hear is well it weren't wasn't my ancestors i wasn't there i can't understand why you're not over this by now <laughs> yeah well you know understand when you know when i'm at the movie theater and i'm minding my own business with my friends and i'm an educated black man i got slammed up against a brick wall and then dropped to the floor and they, I said, what? And they were plain Cole's cops. They didn't even show me a badge. I thought I was getting jumped. And then uh, on the radio, I heard, we got him. We got him. He pats me on the back of the neck, walks off. Said, we thought you were the bank robber or the, uh, we, we thought you were the one that robbed the store. And runs off. <laughs> I don't got badge numbers. I don't have nothing. But I was just violated. This has happened to me so many times in my life. It I'm still just happens, an, yeah. It still happens. Yeah. And it's this for, generation. Not like for this. Yeah. For people to try to act like that doesn't exist and it doesn't happen. That's crazy. It happens all the time. You know, and, and that's why I said it is a it's a systemic problem. It is a problem that white people really have to address in America. They, they have to come together and address that problem. That's why I'm really happy when I see th this latest protest. You can see a change because it is a very mixed group of people protesting. Now, you can you can see how people are realizing that enough is enough. We have to stand up and we have to do something about this. Yeah, I'm you know? actually really, really glad to see that it's it's gone beyond just a couple of days. I thought for sure, you know, when it happened on Friday of last week and, and then it went to Saturday and I was like, oh, great. They're actually doing it two days in a row. And then Sunday yeah. and then Monday and then two. It was like, oh, OK, <laughs> this is there. Oh, yeah. and, yeah, so it's it's definitely something that needs to be addressed, and it's it's obviously being taken very very seriously now. But absolutely, I, I'm just hoping we can get to some 
sort of semblance of order, but I just don't know mm-hmm. what I don't know what I don't even know what it looks like. Yeah. I don't I don't yeah. know what the finish line looks like. <laughs> Me neither. I just wrote a song called "A Change Is Coming," and uh, we're trying to get a video out next week on it. It's kind of talking about the state of affairs. You know, it's a pretty powerful uh, message in the in the music, and I'm releasing that next week. But definitely you know, can't wait to hear that. Yeah, yeah, that's what it. That's what it's talking about. It's like, what does that look like? What, yeah. what, what does it look like when you have a police force that doesn't think they need to be reformed? It's a gang. They're a gang. And so there needs to be reform on so many different levels. Yeah. But we don't we don't have the power to fix that. Yeah, it's, it, see. There's a couple of things that we don't know what it's going to look like. We we don't we still don't know what it's going to look like when we get to the other the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, we it's don't. Just, we got two things that are two massive things that are changing history right before our eyes. And mm-hmm. and nobody knows what it's going to look like once we're on the other side of it. It's just yeah. exactly. Twenty twenty is a biatch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Twenty twenty oh. is not a year to remember, but I think we haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. Well, I, I hope you're right. And um, anyways, I, I know we got a little bit deeper there than we needed to, but I yeah, okay. I, I, I just kind of felt like. You know, you, you've been living through this. You've lived through several phases of this. A lot of people have. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of good and refreshing to, you know, be able to get a little bit of your perspective and kind of see where you stand on this. I mean, Absolutely. where everybody yeah. should be standing on this. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. well, I appreciate it. Thank you so, so much, sir. And everybody pick up the book. It's My Life in the Purple Kingdom. And it comes out. What's the date specifically in September? Do we know? But they didn't tell me. They just said September release, but I think it's going to come out earlier. Well, that's going to be the pre-orders. Get that, get that pre-order now. You know, get the pre-order right now. We've already put the link up on Facebook, so please make sure that you go and check it out and yeah, get it, get it. Thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate being here.